0: in motion because you are constantly upholding all things by the word of your power and we thank you that those not only include gravity they not only include physics but they include the laws of harvest and lord we rejoice our hearts at the security that we have of living in a constant world that you are god who uh, gives consistency because you have a plan you have a purpose and we want to submit our lives to your laws and submit our lives to your purpose for us. And I pray that as I expound your word and as we listen to it, that you would grace us with your Holy Spirit and enable us to live it out as we ought. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read Galatians 6, maybe one more time, maybe two more times. It depends on what I feel led on how much to preach on the last. but uh, Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. This is the inerrant word of God that he speaks to our hearts. We need to pray that the Lord would uh, enable it to be grafted with meekness into our lives. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Amen. You may be seated. we've come to the last two laws of harvest, and I've deliberately grouped these two together because they both deal with issues of the past and how that impacts our life today. Law number seven is that we reap from the sowing of others. And this is a very important law in terms of appreciating uh, the impact of history, especially our own covenantal history. And law number eight, is that we cannot do anything about last year's bad harvest, if you had a bad harvest last year, but you can do something about this year's harvest. And those two laws are interrelated in each other in terms of understanding and appreciating the past. And um, I don't know, I, I, I'm i torn. There's almost too much material to do two laws in one, so I may skip uh, some and deal with it more extendedly next, uh, next week let me just begin with a quote from Gary North. In his book, Millennialism and Social Theory, North says, Present orientation, we've already dealt with that, right? Present orientation. Present orientation is a denial of the very foundations of Western culture. Respect for the past and faith in the future. Now, we've already looked at the importance of having faith in the future, being driven by the future, not being driven by the past, but that does not mean... We should not have an appreciation for the past. We can learn an enormous amount from our past, and we want to look in these two laws as to how to do that. In fact, your own immediate past is uh, critically important if you're to be able to accomplish much. Just think of it this way. If you were to have to start every day with a blank slate where you don't have any memory and you don't have any habits that are formed, what would you be able to accomplish? Nothing. You'd sit on a bed. You'd have to learn every day all over again how to move your hands in a coordinated way. There's so much that has been built upon past habits and actions uh, that enable you to you know, even uh, walk and be able to get a, a fork from your plate into your mouth instead of getting it into your eyeball, right? Uh, we wouldn't be able to do that automatically, tying your shoelaces. It takes a long time for children to learn how to tie their shoelaces and just think what it would be like if you had to learn every habit all over again. You know, we take a lot for granted, I think, in our Christian uh, walk. We take for granted, you know, our ability to drive our car and to eat and to walk and run and do so many different things, which could overnight be completely taken away if you got a stroke. And you might have to learn all over again to do some of those things. I've seen, in fact, I've had to work in therapy with some people who uh, had a stroke and they had to learn all over again how to walk, how to get a a a, a fork up to their mouth instead of, you know, somewhere else in their ear. Uh, We take a lot for granted. Now, if that is true in our own immediate past, what I want to demonstrate today is it is so much more true concerning culture as a whole or concerning the church. We are dependent upon not only our past, but upon the sowing that other people do into our lives. Uh, You could not have a washing machine, a computer, a telephone, a car, countless other investments without other people having invested in the past so that you could reap. Okay, You could not have the American freedoms that we have if our American forefathers had not made major sacrifices to achieve those kinds of freedoms. You could not have commentaries or printed books. I mean, we are constantly reaping things that others sowed. And so let me first of all start with that principle, uh, law number seven, that we reap from the sowing of others. Things that we've not sowed at all, we reap from them. Galatians 6.6 6 indicates that you reap truth from the pastor that you never sowed. He was the one that had sowed through long years of study many things of wisdom, and he is putting into your life things you're reaping you've never sowed. Verse 10. Take a look at verse 10. It says there are going to be unbelievers and there's going to be other believers who are going to reap things from your life that they never sowed you sowed it they benefited they reaped and we should no more begrudge other people reaping and benefiting from the things that we sow than we would begrudge ourselves watching tv just because we didn't invent it or or uh enjoying the freedoms we have in america just because we weren't uh, suffering in the war for independence okay this is a principle that goes across the board. It is it is universal that we reap things we never sowed. We never had a hand in them. And the reason for that is we are covenantally related. We need to think covenantally rather than individualistically. Uh, <clears throat> a lot of people um, uh, don't want to participate in the church's body life, either because they think they don't need it, or because they don't want to be beholden to another person, uh, you know, where I'm reaping something that I didn't sow. I just want to pull my own self up by my own bootstraps because I don't want to be beholden to something. Let me assure you right off the bat, it's impossible for you not to benefit from things you did not sow. Did I word that right? It's impossible not to benefit from the sowing of other people. You do it all the time. Uh, it is something that's inherent in the covenant. God intended that that way. Uh, here's a statement. If you are in covenant, you are supposed to be reaping what others have sowed, and you are supposed to continually sow so that others can reap. God made life to be that way so that we need each other, so that we are interdependent. And when we try to fight against this law of harvest, by individualism or by present-orientedness. What we are doing is we're butting up our head against this law, and it's our forehead that's going to get hurt. It's not the law that's going to get hurt. Remember, we saw these laws are invariable. Nothing removes them. Forgiveness doesn't remove them. Prayer does not remove them. These are laws just like laws of gravity. And um, we need to value the sowing of other people into our lives so much and we need to desire that we could sow into the lives of other people so much that when you are excluded from the first home group that starts up, which most of you will be, I've told Bob, I only want one home group to start. When you're excluded from that first home group, you're going to be majorly bummed out. You're going to say, oh man, I can hardly wait till the other group starts spinning off and I can be a part of it. You're always going to be nagging Bob. When can I get a part of that home group? And I hope this principle instills into your heart such a desire to not only invest into the lives of others, but also to have them investing into your life a mutuality of covenant. I want you to see so much that it's a denial of the covenant to fail to be ministering to each other in a body life that, that being a part of the home groups is very, very important to you. Now, you're not going to be a, be a part of it because I want you to get hungry for it, okay? Okay. You're only going to have one small group. We're going to be starting to raise up leaders, but I want you guys, over time, to begin to realize there is incredible value and there is incredible benefit to those home groups. Now, I'm getting way ahead of myself. Uh, That's down the road. I need to be applying that, but let me just describe this principle a little bit more detail, and I want you to see that it is universal. It applies in every area of life in many different ways. And I think the only part of this principle that sinners tend to think about very consciously, self-consciously, is the negative part. And I'll give you a few examples of negative, then we'll look at some uh, positive examples. But uh, uh, debt. We have a debt in America that our generation, for the most part, did not sow. And a lot of people think, well, that's unfair. Why should I be paying for a debt of 50 years of deficit spending. Why should I have that? Well, it's a part of being covenantally related uh, to our nation. Uh, This is just a principle. you know, people say, uh, you know, if they were to apply it to gravity, people would say, well, that's ridiculous, you know, say, it's not fair when a person falls off a bridge for him to get mangled or for him to die. Well, that's gravity. It's a law. That's what I want you guys to be seeing in terms of these laws of harvest. They're invariable. It's just the way God designed this world uh, to work and there's eventually going to be coming a time when those debts are going to come crushingly down upon somebody's shoulders who did not sow all of the debt sin is the same way let me read you a verse exodus 34 and verse 7 talks about god keeping mercy for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin that's the positive side by no means clearing the guilty now get this phrase here so is the negative side, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You say, that's not fair. I didn't commit those sins. How come it's being visited upon me? That's my grandfather's problem. Well, that's just part of the laws that God has set in place uh, in, in nature, just like gravity is in place you cannot escape from this law even though you may try to rebel against it all you're going to do is be suffering from failing to acknowledge the law and working in terms of it but you cannot get away from this law Uh, we are covenantally connected with our nation we're covenantally connected with Adam and Eve and praise Jesus we are covenantally connected to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the church through whom God causes many blessings to flow Now, the encouraging thing to me about that last verse that we read is that God says that the positive side of that law is far more extensive than the negative side. He says it's to a thousand generations as compared to two or three generations, right? And uh, if you look at uh, American culture, that helps to explain why is it that God continues to bless our nation when our nation has so much abandoned him? We've got evil all around us. Well, it's because... The power of what has been planted by our forefathers lasts much longer than the power that sin has in people's lives. We continue to enjoy the fruits of American forefathers even though we're living in an entirely different way than they are living. And uh, <clears throat> one of the uh, things that we can do is to pluck up righteousness. You know, revolution always plucks up righteousness so that you don't get the fruits any longer. And there are several countries that have done that. Uh, Cambodia, for example. They wanted to make sure they cleaned out everything. They, they ruined relics. They burned books. They killed all teachers. Uh, they What was it? About a third of the population they just wiped out. Through revolution, yes, you can pluck up the plants that have been sowed and you won't get any more fruit from the righteousness that was uh, that, that, that was laid there. And we need to be plucking up. Uh, the, uh, the sinful things that are, are, are in our past as well. Uh, it can be plucked up so that it doesn't do any more damage, but it's already done some damage. One of the, <clears throat> uh, one of the uh, things that you find in the early church, I think it's probably through the first six or seven centuries, is that there was a, a ritual that they went through called exorcism when a person would first come to Christ. Now, it's quite different than what we think of as, as exorcism, Basically what it was is when they came to Christ, they renounced Satan and all of his hosts, all the powers of darkness, any foothold that he might have in their lives or in their ancestors' lives. They cut that completely off. In fact, I've got a, I've got a prayer that does exactly that uh, by Mark Bubeck that several of you have mentioned. Someone just this past week, I'm trying to remember who it was, but even this past week somebody said, you know, we tried that prayer and it's made a huge difference in my life and uh and uh, that was something that only came as an understanding to me when i was at trinity uh, my brother and i our whole family actually has been plagued with a besetting sin most people don't know in my life because i'd conquered it to such a degree that i didn't usually let it out but it was anger and it was very severe wicked anger and it was just come out of the blue where where in the world it would come from i didn't understand but my brother was the first one that began to realize maybe this is a visitation of the sin of the parents upon the third and fourth generation. He went to my parents because as far back, my grand, grandfather almost killed his kids several times, you know, beaten and so bad. Uh, I remember one time the other kids smashed a chair over his head to knock him out because they were afraid that, you know, the kid he was beaten on would have been killed. Terrible anger going all the way back. Well, my brother went to my parents, and uh, they prayed this prayer to cut off that, and it completely solved the problem for him. I did the same thing, and even though I had gained victory over anger to a great degree, it's been years now. I have not had even the slightest inkling of anger in my life. Why? Because there was a demonic visitation that was there, and several of you have said, you've had victory there as well. So there's a plucking up, as it were, in the demonic realm. There's a plucking up in other ways that can be done. But um, we are covenantally related to our parents, and that's why our parents' uh, sins affect the children and the grandchildren. They're visited to the third and fourth generation. Scripture speaks not only of the fruits of sin, but of covenant punishments that we reap, even though we didn't sow any of the seeds. I mean, just think of a nation where a king decides he's going to declare war. Maybe it's an ungodly war. You didn't declare the war, but because the king did, you're covenantally related to that kingdom, you may suffer in the process. You can think of Jeremiah. He was a man who was loved by God. He suffered because of the sins of Israel. You can think of Daniel, suffering in exile. He was greatly loved by God, yet he suffered. He's covenantally connected to Israel. And uh, when you are connected to the church, there is a covenantal relationship there that bears positively, it also bears negatively. I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We'll just look at one example of this. Revelation chapter 2, it shows a church that's coming under judgment, God's judgment, because there were members in that church who were not walking as they ought. And let's begin at verse 19. He's talking to the church of thyatira he says i know your works love service faith and your patience and as for your works the last are more than the first now let's not jump over that verse this is huge here is a congregation that is being sanctified their last works are greater than their first works right christ is very impressed with their works, their faith, their love, their service, their patience. I mean, he's very impressed with that, but I want you to notice what he says in verse 20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Uh, Here was a church that was holy itself. It was not committing sexual immorality. But it was judged, God was threatening to judge it, because it tolerated a person who was committing sexual immorality and was spreading that. Why? They're covenantally related. This is one of the reasons it would scare me to death to be a member of an apostate denomination, you know, a mainline denomination. I wouldn't want to come under the judgments that God was bringing upon that denomination. There's a covenantal relationship that we must be aware of. In uh, verse... Two, it talks about the church of Ephesus being in danger of being removed. And in verse 16, uh, it, it, it says the same, God fright, uh, threatens to fight against them. So this is a very serious law that we are talking about. Very, very serious. Uh, applies to other things. It applies to education. I've occasionally complained about the fact that my <laughs> the education that I got bouncing from school to school out in Africa and the States was substandard. And I felt like what was sewed into my life was not not adequate. And so when I left high school, I went back to college to learn math, to get logic. In fact, I had to teach myself logic because I didn't even get that in in college, and philosophy and other things like that. And the reason I was doing that is because I was wanting to break off some of the things and to add some of the, Things that could benefit my children. I want my children to go beyond where I'm going, is basically what I'm saying. And I want my grandchildren to go beyond where my children are at. And that's why I'm communicating to my children a vision like this, that uh, there needs to be this constant growth from generation to generation. We're passing on a heritage. Let me give you one more negative. There are a lot of people who have been plagued with bad memories from the past, where they've learned bad habits from their parents or had inconsistencies. And again, unless those are rooted out, the whole plant plucked up, they're going to continue to seed. And they're going to continue to have an impact third and fourth generation. Now, don't be fatalistic about this because, like I say, you can root that out in one generation. In fact, you can root it out overnight. There are some things you can root out overnight. Just keep plucking up those dandelion seeds and keep planting the righteous seeds. Uh, So, anyway, we tend to recognize the bad harvest. We see it all around us. We complain about that. What I want to point out is that the good that comes into our lives through the sowing of other people far, far outnumbers and outweighs what we get negatively. Verse 6 hints at the division of labor between the pastor and those who are taught. Okay? Not all are teachers. But as you share in my life by taking care of my needs so that I can focus on ministry and as I focus on ministering to you, we share in each other's harvest, okay? We share in the rewards that each other has. There's a, there's kind of a, a mutuality that, that that goes there. And if you once grasped the power of the, the principle of the division of labor, and it started with Eve, God gave Eve a division of labor, it, it just blow your mind absolutely blow your mind how God has constructed this world. It is so encouraging. One of my favorite economic essays was written by Leonard E. Reed from Hillsdale College. And uh, it was about the manufacturer of a pencil, and it was titled, I Pencil. And it's a pencil talking about how it came into How many here have read that? Oh, man, you guys are missing life. This is a great little essay. I've got to maybe just make a photocopy, remind me. Maybe make a note for me to photocopy. Wonderful essay, giving you a simple introduction to the complexities of economics and why free market economics is the only way to go. Marvelous. We've got one person back there, our scholar, uh, Larry Nolte in the back, that has read that. Praise the Lord. But anyway, in here he says, uh, a pencil just seems like a common little thing, you know? How could it be too hard to make a pencil? You know, it's just... Wood and lead, right? A little bit of rubber on the end, a little bit of metal on there, paint, lacquer. There's not much that it would take to make a, a pencil. And yet he points out that apart from division of labor, it would be impossible. It would be impossible for one person to make a pencil in a way where he'd be able to sell it and make any kind of a profit. In fact, it would be so prohibitive, nobody would make the pencil. Uh, he... He talks, for example, if you start with just the the tree that the wood came from, then you need to factor in the saws and the trucks and the rope and all of the other gear that it takes to take the lumber over to the railroad siding, and then you've got to think then about the iron ore to make some of the tools that had to be mined, and the steel-making process and the... Uh, growth of the hemp and turning it into rope. and uh, He just goes on and on about how some of these things, the complicated uh, details that go into making the paint. I had no idea of how many different dependencies there are there in the lacquer. Making the lacquer. And then he says there's a complication in terms of the parts of the pencil. It's not just two halves. You've got different parts that are sandwiched together over this Uh, Graphite. The graphite itself, making that, was uh, quite an interesting process. And uh, so that's put all together, and then you've got all of the other parts. He says, by the time you get through reading that essay, you you just realize we are so dependent upon each other for even the simplest of technologies that we enjoy in America, it is amazing that it works. (laughs) It's amazing, absolutely amazing. Now, what happens if you take out one of the little steps in the making of that pencil? Immediately what happens is you make either the making of the pencil very cost prohibitive or impossible. You know, the rubber from Ceylon and, you know, different things like that. You make it impossible to make. What happens to a church's ministry and body life when one of the parts that God intended in terms of covenant to be interdependent is missing. What it makes is it makes it either very costly or impossible for the church to function as God intended it to function. Okay? We're, we're, we're talking about here a very comprehensive uh, principle. In fact, it doesn't just apply to body life. It applies to absolutely everything that we do. It's a fundamental principle of economics. You look at any free market economics textbook, you will see it right in there. In his book, Uh, Backward Christian Soldiers, I love the title of that, Backward Christian Soldiers. Well, he says why it is we're backward. We're never going to take this culture if we don't change some of the attitudes. Great book to read. But Gary North says this, one of the most fundamental principles of economics is the division of labor. Almost anyone in the industrial nations has more tools and comforts than the kings of the 18th century. That's phenomenal to think about. Almost any one of us has more tools, more comforts, than the kings of the 18th century. Better medical care with safe and effective anesthetics, warmer homes in the winter, cooler homes in the summer, cheaper entertainment every night of the week. And he goes on to show that that is only possible because of the sowing of countless people down through generations. And so we need to value the past. We need to value the past. And we need to value the covenantal relationships, not only in the nation, but within the church that God has placed us into, and we need to maximize those. When one little detail is taken out of the pencil, pencil can't be produced. When one little part that is important in the body is taken out, the body is going to be inefficient. It's not going to work as it ought to work. And so in verse six, he tells us, don't neglect the pastoral ministry. In verse 10, he tells us, don't neglect the body life, the body ministry that works together. Now it's not just true in terms of right now. Factor this covenantal thinking into your plans for the future. Just as we reaped while we have not sowed, we need to be willing to sow so that others will reap. Okay, <clears throat> we've enjoyed all kinds of um, of uh, blessings from our founding fathers: freedoms in America. Uh, kind of political government you look at the economics you look at all of the different things that flowed out of Calvinism that affected America as an American experiment and we bless them for giving that to us will a future generation bless us because we have been diligently sowing in a way that they will be able to reap we need to think through those kinds of issues and we might think hey I'm just one person what in the world can I accomplish but Paul says in verse 9 Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Every person needs to do his part. Everett Hale said this, I'm only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I should do, and with the help of God, I will do. Can you make that commitment this morning? You may feel like you're only one, but there's a covenantal relationship where you need to be sowing into the lives of others, and you need to be willing to have other people sow into your life. Are you willing to do that? In fact, I, I think what we should do I want you guys to just take out a piece of paper, and I want you to write down a commitment before the Lord this morning because we're sure not going through this just just to go through it. The reason the Lord's given us His Word is to change us, right? And this is God speaking to us. It's not just some lesson you go to and you can diss it if you want to. He says in verse 6 that there's ways in which you need to be ministering in the life of the pastor. He says in verse 10, there's ways you need to be ministering to unbelievers and there's ways you need to be ministering to the body of Christ itself. So what what I want you to do I want you to write down some concrete ways that you're committed before God to begin applying the law of harvest, where you're going to begin to, to sow that into the life of other people. And if you don't know what to put down, and if you don't have a piece of paper, write it on your hand, okay? <laughs> but I want you to be putting it into practice. It's not going to do any good if you put it up into your head only, okay? I want you to be thinking through, what am I going to be doing? Uh, talk to me if you don't know what to do. It Write down on your piece of paper, okay, after the service I'm going to talk to Pastor Kaiser, okay? And uh, ask him, what are some ways that I can serve in the church? But uh, write down what you can do. It may be something very, very concrete and tangible like uh, putting some sweat into helping people move. back. you know, I, I was really disappointed at how few people came out to the Meisner's house for the Dominion, uh, the old Dominion house. And there may have been reasons why people weren't able to do that. But here's a family that has terrible needs that they're going through. I mean, can you imagine going through what they're going through right now? And we're not willing to take out a part of a day to minister in their lives. Matt's going to be giving another uh, Old Dominion house, right, Matt? You're going to be giving another Old Dominion house for the Meisners? Uh, I would like there to be a better showing at the next time doing more than what they anticipated that they were going to do. But anyway, that's, that's a side point. We need to minister in each other's lives. It may be helping the bookers to b- move in a couple of weeks. Uh, there, if you just open your eyes, there's all kinds of ways in which we can invest in the lives of other people. And I want you to write down some concrete ways in which before God, I'm not going to collect the papers, this is before you and the Lord, but in which you can minister before him. In fact, I'm going to go out and take a drink. Give you some time to write those down. Think about it. Uh, we have gone through two subpoints under Law Seven. We've seen negatively how this law applies. We've seen positively how it applies. Let's look third at miraculously. How this law applies as well. Now, if you just look at uh, the other seven laws, and you don't apply it in terms of the miraculous, I think the level of your vision is going to be severely limited. It's going to be hindered. Um, those other seven laws, for me, are exciting. I mean, they are so exciting. They just they just push up the ceiling, you know, of where you can go as an individual, as a family, as a church. But this law indicates. There are so many ways, it's so encouraging, so many ways in which we reap where well, we have never lifted a single fig- finger, and uh, miracles is one of those. I'm going to read you just quickly a few biblical examples of people who were prospered by God in miraculous ways. We're talking about the Christian and prosperity, right? These laws are talking about various ways in which financially, emotionally, spiritually, we can be prospered by the Lord if we have these laws in place. Well here's one where God just miraculously does that. And and it applies to finances. Even in finances you can sow or you can reap where you have not sowed. Let's give you some examples. God provided bread for the Israelites in the wilderness. Exodus 16. And there was several million Israelites that he was feeding on a regular basis. He did the same with the quail in Exodus chapter 16. No, that's 16 is the uh, the bread. Numbers 11 is the quail. Three times God mentions that he kept their clothes and shoes from wearing out. He kept their feet from swelling. Deuteronomy 8, 29:5, 5. Nehemiah 9, verse 21. Okay, we ought not to despise the miraculous even in the area of the stocks and bonds, you know, of your investments. Uh, it was God uh, who enabled the Oil of the widow to be multiplied in 2 Kings 4, verses 1 through 7. And then at the end of that chapter, he multiplies a little bit of food so that it feeds 100 people. Sort of like the miracle that Christ uh, did in the Gospels. God fed Elijah through the harvesting efforts of the ravens in 1 Kings 17. So he not only didn't sow, he didn't even reap. Okay, They were reaping for him and bringing it to him. Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish in Matthew 14, and in the next chapter, he fed 4,000 with seven loaves and a few fish. He helped the disciples... Oh, I love this one. He helped the disciples pay their taxes by telling them to go put their line in the, in the ocean, and the first, um, the first fish that comes out will have a coin in its mouth. He said, you can pay your taxes with that. And, you know, there's many people I've talked to who have said, in fact, we've, we've had that testimony. We didn't know where in the world the next thing was going to come from, and the Lord provides. He provides miraculously in so many different ways. Christ helped his disciples catch a bold load, boatload of fish on more than one occasion. Luke 5, John 21. Okay, our God is a God of miracles, and there is no law on the books that says he can't do miracles today. Amen? <laughs> Are you with me? Uh, this, is, this is, to me, one of the most encouraging of, uh, of the laws. All of the laws to me are very, very encouraging, but this law presupposes that we are not only in covenantal relationship with other humans, we're in covenantal relationship with God, and that God delights in pouring out into our lives his blessings. If we want to prosper, we've been talking about various principles that need to be in place if God is to prosper us, and let's go ahead and recite I don't think I'm going to cover law number eight. I really think before the Lord I need to go in more depth than I would have time to do today. But let's recite that uh, theme verse of this series, 3 John 2. You can test me to see if I remember this because I didn't even have it written down here. 3 John 2, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in hell just as your soul prospers. Let's do that again. And thinking in our minds, he's calling, he's, he's saying, this is God's wish. We may prosper in absolutely everything that we do, emotionally, financially, in our marriages, with our children. Uh, doesn't matter what it is, even in our bodies, he wants us to prosper. Let's say it again. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. That needs to be our prayer before the Lord for each other. God delights in blessing, especially not when we're asking, Lord, bless me, bless me, bless me, but Lord, let's bless each other. That's why we give our shalom to each other at the beginning of the service. We're really wanting God's peace, His health, His His blessings to rest upon the lives of others. So let's begin investing into the lives of each other, but let's pray. Father God, we commit our lives to you and ask that you would help us to really Uh, be able to prosper because we are concerned not about ourselves, but we're concerned about what others do. We're constantly investing what we have into the lives of others. We're serving others. And I pray each one of us would grasp that servant's heart and realize that it's in giving that we receive the most. Father, I pray that as this congregation more and more enters into what it means to have a steward's heart, and to live for others that we would taste of this reaping from the sowing of others and rejoice in it and not feel guilty about it and not be so pig-headed and prideful that we're unwilling to be served by others. Help us, Lord, to have the humility to receive the love of others and to give love to others. Bind us together, Father, in a deep-seated body life where we'll minister and care for each other and we'll give you all of the praise and the honor and the glory.